what's up? It's podcast number two of um, T.Resto Recovery for Cry 710 Research Methodologies in the Creative Industries. It's Leah and Lexi here. Hello. Hello. Uh, we're going to start today off with um, some land acknowledgements. So I'm going to start with a Sarnia land acknowledgement because that's where I'm from. So we acknowledge that the land that we are gathered on is part of the traditional territory of the Nashabek, Haudenosaunee, Ojibwe, Iroquois, and Chippewa peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. These indigenous nations agree through their ancestral languages to the mutual sharing of the land with obligations and responsibilities to the environment. Today, these responsibilities and obligations extend to all peoples. And I'm in Toronto, so I'm going to do the Toronto land acknowledgement. Uh, the city of Toronto acknowledges that we are on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa and the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples is, is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Metis people. The city also acknowledges that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty signed with the multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. These acknowledgements are a reminder of the discriminatory, racist, and colonial practices that have had a lasting legacy and continue to create barriers for Indigenous peoples and communities in our cities and across Turtle Island. Um, so today, Lexi and I are going to talk about our neighborhoods um, that we researched for this project and kind of um, connect back to some of our research. So just a reminder of our research question. Um, how have restaurants in culturally significant neighborhoods been affected by COVID-19? So the neighborhood that I focused on is uh, the village. So I'm, I actually live kind of close nearby it, uh, right near Church in Wellesley is, is kind of where the village neighborhood is kind of encircled around. So I'm gonna give a little bit of a backstory, just highlight the culture and the significance of this neighborhood to kind of showcase how its restaurants have done so well within this neighborhood in the past. So the village is regarded as the heart of Toronto's LGBTQ community and has a very rich history. In the 70s, the gay community uh, shifted towards Church and Wellesley because there was plenty of affordable spaces to live compared to uh, more of the young downtown area. Um, and so it became a space filled with bars, dance clubs, and bathhouses. In the mid-1970s, a lot of development began in this area as communities and people started to live here and have families. And so a community center was built, uh, which created a welcoming space for uh, lots of different people and a lot of diversity began to grow in this area. Um, in 81, the neighborhood was shaken down with an arrest of over 300 gay men, becoming Canada's second largest mass arrest. And this community has been rebuilding itself ever since. That's actually why Toronto Pride kind of became a revival of political power um, because of the raids that happened in 81. Um, and so the gay and queer community have faced a lot of hardship together. And because of that, this community has strengthened and supported each other. And so there's so many gay friendly businesses that thrive here um, and have been in the neighborhood for years. And it tends to also have a very busy nightlife scene. Um, COVID-19 hit this neighborhood fairly hard um, because a lot of these restaurants do depend on the nightlife that comes with them. Um, they mostly re rely on alcohol sales and people coming in to party in groups and dance together and things like that. So the indoor dining restrictions um, that the city of Toronto has enforced and the restaurant curfews have been what has really greatly affected these restaurants um, because of their bar areas, party tables, dance floors, like I said. 
and they're just not designed for takeout. The restaurant restrictions have also changed frequently, which has kind of, you know, made restaurants have to move back and forth uh, with like their strategies of how they're going to survive. Um, you know, there's been different restrictions changing um, and the lockdowns have kind of been going back and forth. So it's been pretty, um, pretty tough. Um, and they're also trying to, we kind of noticed back in our research that uh, restaurants are having a really hard time currently as well because there is an increase in competition because there's less customers outside. So they have to find new ways to attract um, these customers, um, you know, using food delivery apps and new featured meals. And um, now the city of Toronto is allowing restaurants to um, sell alcohol. So, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some freedom there, but it's, it's not great. More on the COVID specifics too. On the 23rd of September, Cruising Tangos, which is a citywide popular drag bar right in the heart of the village, um, had a customer and a drag performer test positive for COVID, um, which immediately shut them down. And shortly after our bartender at Woody's, which is a gay bar established in 1989, um, also had a bartender test positive for COVID. So the entire kind of strip had to shut down uh, because COVID had kind of spread from bar to bars, um, because a lot of people in the evening will go from one restaurant to another. Uh, drag performers will go from, you know, one event to another really quickly. So, um, you know, there's people coming back and forth, that whole, you know, stick to your table, you know, make a reservation, leave a number, um, like wasn't really happening. Currently, the future of the village is unknown. Plenty of the restaurants and cafes and bars are currently completely closed right now because and then on September 25th, restaurant and bars within Toronto were not allowed to serve alcohol past 11 p.m. And then on November 20th, this curfew moved to 9 p.m., uh, which even greatly diminished the amount of business that the village usually sees. Because again, mostly nightlife, mostly alcohol, mostly bars, they can only be takeout only right now. Um, so some of them aren't even open. Cruise and Tango's itself is actually currently facing closure. The property may become a 15-story condo. Um, so the future of it is even in question. Um, there's been some talk about the condo incorporating the space still and making it work, um, but they've also just been um, struggling with like a lot of financial worries because they're not bringing in the same amount of money as before. And yeah, and even too, like the restaurant that I worked at uh, was owned by a 40 year old man who uh, moved from France 10 years ago and opened up this bar. So it, you can tell that there's like a lot of really rich culture and history and it'll be interesting to see what happens mm -hmm. and, and that's my community <laughs> what bar did you work at leah um i worked at boutique bar oh, okay it's right beside cruising tangos actually they're directly beside each other i think i might have been there before yeah maybe it, i had never really noticed it but it has such yeah. classy drinks and yeah the nightlife there was there's it was and even during covid too like again like the rules just couldn't be followed okay so I'm going to talk about my area now. So I did Koreatown. So Koreatown is actually a pretty small area. It's just on Bloor Street. It's between Christie and Bathurst, and it's in the Seton Village area. So we kind of focused on this as another minority neighborhood, but it's actually pretty small. So it's hard to get a lot of research from there, specifically what we're talking about and not commercialized restaurants. So when I was going through to find all my research in my data collection, I mainly looked at restaurants that were minority owned because that's kind of how it is in Koreatown. It's either a commercialized McDonald's or it's a, minor like a minority owned restaurant. So one of the first things I wanted to talk about in my research 
was that we found that 40% of the popular restaurants we examined in Koreatown were closed due to COVID-19 implications. So this was kind of like the first 15 that showed up and 40% of them actually had to close. So that's a pretty high amount. That's almost like 50% of the restaurants in just one small area having to close. And also what we found that a lot of these restaurants were under 20 years old. So these restaurants weren't like any kind of, I, it's not surprising that they weren't old restaurants because obviously they're going to have more business and more notoriety in the community. But it's kind of sad to see all these restaurants, especially in the 10 to 20 years old, range closing due to COVID. And it also goes to show that a lot of restaurants are disproportionately affected by COVID-19 closures, especially minority-owned restaurants, because when I was looking through, it wasn't one commercialized restaurant was closed. It was all minority-owned. And this also relates back to one of our original findings in the annotated bibliography and that we also use in the literature review. We found that many immigrant workers and minorities have disproportionately been affected with COVID because they have less protection at work when compared to commercialized restaurants. So when minorities don't have this PPE equipment, they're more likely to contract COVID-19 than they have to close. And then they ultimately close for good because of financial implications. Another interesting thing that I found when I was going through was pretty much every restaurant they had articles written about when they were closed. And a lot of the owners said it was financial implications and it was only one restaurant that was closed that wasn't financial implications. And it was just because they wanted to close because COVID made them realize they wanted to spend more time with their family. Another surprising thing we found was that um, restaurant reviews have very little to do with the closures of these restaurants. So it is mainly financial implications. When I looked through every restaurant that I examined, I looked through all the reviews all the way back to March and I collected them all and compiled them all into data. And only 20% of the popular Koreatown restaurants that closed have had bad reviews. So pretty much all of them that did close, they had good reviews. It wasn't them not following COVID protocols or not them keeping up to cleanliness in the COVID-19 pandemic. It was more so just them closing because of financial implications. So I thought that was pretty interesting because it, again, just backs up on the fact that COVID-19 is affecting them financially and it's not their fault at all. And again, I just wanted to reinforce the fact that I looked mainly at minority owned restaurants that I wasn't focusing at all on commercialized restaurants. So I guess that does impact the data a bit differently, but for our research question, it makes more sense to focus on that because that's why we chose these neighborhoods to begin with. And that's why we chose places like Koreatown to see if minorities were disproportionately affected by COVID-19 implications. So all in all, Koreatown was pretty interesting to go through and research because it's such a small community. So it's cool to see how I can literally look it up on Google and then all these restaurants come up and they're all minority owned. And I can see like literally like 10 of them, the main ones, and then the rest is just like commercialized. So it was pretty easy to gather data. And it was also pretty interesting because a lot was written about it. And although it is small, a lot of people go there for their cuisine. So it was pretty cool to see all the research about it. And that's it. That's so great. I really, I really liked how you focused on like the minority restaurants. And I feel like, like your area was so rich for that. So yeah. I also liked how you like talked about like the like commercialized businesses. Cause it made me think about how like in the village, um, there's all of these restaurants and then all of a sudden there's a Loblaws mm -hmm. and the Loblaws just like, you know, kind of 
you know, creates that really big divide of like these like huge corporate like commercialized places to go get food and convenient and then like all of these other like niche offerings. When we look back on our lit review, we see that um, our research shows us that the service industry before COVID was rising and that even within Toronto, local restaurants made up over 80% of the small business industry. Um, and studies forecasted that growth was going to occur for the service industry. But with the pandemic, uh, we're seeing things slow down and we're specifically seeing local small business, minority run, people of color and women suffer. The service industry is definitely going to be one of the hardest hit industries because of COVID-19. And it's even actually created a larger gap for these minorities. I was listening to a podcast the other day. It's called uh, Business Casual and it's run by a US news source called The Morning Brew. And they actually had an economic reporter for the New York Times on, um, Eduardo Porter. And he was kind of talking about how this is going to be a huge economic downturn for some industries. And one of them was specifically the service industry. And he said that specifically women and minorities were going to suffer the most because the service industry is largely employed by um, these groups of people. And we can see that in Toronto and they can even see that on a U.S like more global scale. So it's, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. And it, it is, it's, it's a little sad to see that, um, that the people who are suffering the most are people that we want to protect. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Cause you're right. When you look at it, it's, it's everywhere. Anything to add? Lexi? Um, one more thing I wanted to add to talking about the minority part mm -hmm. was when I was going through mine, it was interesting to see in Koreatown that in the restaurants that were owned by people from Korea, like they were owned, we had like one of the restaurants I examined actually was an indigenous restaurant, and that he like that one was closed down. Like a lot of them were minority owned, but it wasn't specific to that neighborhood. It wasn't like Korean owned restaurants, right? So I thought it was pretty interesting to see that even the restaurants that identify with that neighborhood mm -hmm. are closed down, but also the minority owned ones there. Like it just reinforces that they're disproportionately affected, even when it isn't the neighborhood's identity itself. 